Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode number 464 of the podcast. It's Carrie here, and I hope our time together today helps you thrive in life and leadership. Hey, one of my favorite things to do is to learn from all kinds of different inputs and sources. And uh, this one's really personal, this episode. I've gotten to know a couple of entrepreneurs slash restaurateurs in my community. Aurelia, Ontario, for those of you who know where that is, and 99% of you will have no idea. It's a little town of 30,000 people. It's the closest city I live to. But anyway, uh, and I've gotten to know these restaurateurs. And I think they have such a fascinating story. I wanted to bring it to you. So you are going to meet... Simon McRae and Darcy McDonnell. And uh, they've been at this for a little while. Simon's pretty young. He's just really his first venture. And then Darcy's owned a couple of restaurants along the way in Toronto and in other places. So you're going to get to meet them. Uh, We're going to chat. We did this at my house and I had the very intimidating job of cooking them dinner, which we talk about. I'll I'll let you know how that went in a minute. So I think you're really going to enjoy this. And man, there are so many lessons when they, they open two restaurants in a lockdown. Like how often does that happen? And they're successful and profitable. And they did it in a town that actually doesn't support high-end dining, like the kind of restaurants that they brought. So it's pretty fascinating. I think you're really going to enjoy this story. I'm excited about it. And uh, this episode is brought to you by MetaShare. They have a 98% customer satisfaction rating and an average member saving of 50% or more. Find out how much you could save by going to metashare.com carry. And by Red Letter Living, learn more about their 40-day challenges and get 10 to 40% off church packs and pastors. You get a free book over at redletterchallenge.com slash carry. So I don't want to give too much away uh, about the conversation because we kind of get into the narrative as the dialogue goes. But I will say it was really refreshing to find a restaurant locally that I love so much. I was very opposed to going out to restaurants because I used to fly pre-pandemic like over 100,000 miles a year. And I was in restaurants all the time. And when I would get home, I would just want to be home. And then enough people told me that there was this new place opening up. I had to go check it out that uh, finally I I got there and I'm like, oh my goodness, I can't believe this. So my wife, Tony, was really happy about that because she always wanted to go out. And I'm like, no, we're going to stay home. And uh, Darcy and Simon really changed my mind on that. And I just think it's a fascinating case study in doing what many people would have said was impossible. Uh, First of all, opening two restaurants in the middle of a pandemic during lockdown. Canada was locked down for a lot of the first year of their operation, and they had to innovate again and again to stay profitable and stay open. And then uh, to be able to do it in a market that generally does not support restaurants like the ones that they are bringing was just fascinating. So I think keep your notebooks open. You're going to love this. Uh, They're going to share some of their bio as we go. So I think you're going to love the conversation with uh, Simon McRae and Darcy McDonnell. Now, it is that time of year again, open enrollment season. It is your dreaded yearly task of diving into a mountain of paperwork and research to find your healthcare options. And you're looking for trust and affordability. Well, MediShare has a 98% customer satisfaction rating 
and an average member savings of 50% or more. They offer access to almost a million healthcare providers, have a proven quarter-century track record, and they also offer free, unlimited, and professional virtual counseling sessions to their members. Right now is the best time to make the switch. So find out how much you could save by going to metashare.com slash carry. That's M-E-D-I-S-H-A-R-E dot com slash C-A-R-E-Y. And leading a church the past two years has been tough. We've talked about that a lot. Keeping everyone on one mission with everything that's going on has not been easy. I mean, think about it. People are just divided about everything. Some people saying you need to speak up. Others are offended that you said too much. Division is at an all-time high. Well, pastors, one of the wisest things you can do in divisive times when noise is really loud is go back to the basics, back to the good news. And what unifies more than anything? Well, the gospel. And as we enter a new year with the Lenten season right around the corner, why not spend 40 days diving deep into the life, words, and habits of Jesus by using the 40-day challenge from Red Letter Living? The original best-selling Red Letter Challenge has been used in hundreds of churches, 600 actually, in three years. The feedback that comes most often, especially during COVID, is that it provides much-needed unity. So if you want to explore the original Red Letter Challenge or you want to look at Red Letter Living, you can learn more and get 10 to 40% off church packs. Uh, You can get a free book, all that stuff, at redletterchallenge.com slash carry. That's redletterchallenge.com forward slash C-A-R-E-Y. And now, without further ado, a delightful conversation with Simon and Darcy, owners of The Common Stove and Picnic, two of my new favorite restaurants. All right. Well, Simon, Darcy, it's good to have you in the studio. I don't do many of these like in my house, actually in the studio videos, but exciting. Good to be I feel with special. You. Oh, you are special. So um, I must confess I feel a little bit like, because uh, we're going to have dinner after we do this interview, and you guys are restaurateurs, my favorite restaurateurs. I feel a little bit like someone who's been, you know, doing paint by numbers, and I'm sitting down with Picasso going, uh, <laughs> hey, you know, I, I got some stuff I'm working on. You want to have a look? Like, uh, we're going to eat from the big green egg after this. Well, luckily for uh, luckily for us all, neither of us are the chef at Common Stove. So, <laughs> oh, there you go. You're, you're just the owners, right? We now, just provide the critique. <laughs> you just find the critique. Everything that was wrong with the meal tonight. Yeah, it was a little bit intimidating, but it's a joy to have you here. This has been a long time coming, and uh, explain some of the backstory in the introduction. But uh, you really have done a great job, I think, bringing world class dining. I mean, my story was when I used to come home. You know, I used to fly pre-COVID 100, 150,000 miles a year. Tony would always be, let's go out for dinner. And I'm like, we are not going out. I am so tired of eating out. I just want to sit in my backyard and not move. And then you guys came to town and it took the prodding of a number of friends to say, no, you really have to try the common stove. This is in your first month. (laughs) And I'm like, oh my goodness, I think it's going to change my life. So here we are a year and a half, almost two years later, sitting down to talk about that. And um, yeah, just let me start with a thank you for bringing top level dining to a town of 30,000 people an hour north of Toronto. And uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Darcy, give us the like brief thumbnail bio. And then Simon, I'd love to hear about your background as well. Um, I grew up on a small town dairy farm. Uh, Ah. Mom had a large French Canadian family. So we always hosted every holiday and 
Um, my dad had fish fries and corn roasts as part of a farmer politician role that he had in our community. So I grew up always uh, with a house full of people and um, was lucky enough with my dad being in politics to, uh, as a young age, at a young age, to dine in a lot of Toronto restaurants. Oh, wow. So, so really your dad was of, a politician? Just a mayor of a, of a small town. Mayor of a small town. also did some Ontario stuff, like um, more regional stuff and uh, provincial stuff. So, Oh, wow. Wow. So grew up around food, love food. What made you want to get into the restaurant business? Because you spent a number of years in Toronto before you moved up here. Yeah, it was always the idea of I want to be my own boss and, and have my own business. Yeah. So then the question is, what you know, what is that business, right? Um, and through a lot of, I think, reflecting and, and soul searching, it was the idea of being around people. And like I said, having a house full of people eating and drinking and laughing and that conviviality piece was, um, was the answer. That's very French-Canadian, isn't it? That I think so, of, yeah. Or at least... From what I know, mm-hmm. being mm-hmm. in Quebec, that kind of community, that's very East Coast. Yeah, it's not that fun. Quebec is East Coast. And a lot of fun. Okay, great. Simon, how about yourself? Yeah, so I uh, grew up in the UK and mm. for a long time, I think, thought I was going to pursue a career in music. That was that was what I studied at, uh, at, at university, at school there. And I guess I was fortunate to travel a fair amount uh, as uh, in my late teens and spend a lot of time in, in France and Italy and uh, uh, around Europe. And now I, hearing Darcy say that, uh, I didn't quite realize we, I, I guess we had a, a, similar, a similar goal at that stage was that I, I would see that small town tavern owner or that small town cafe bar owner and think, wow, this, this is a fantastic life. You know, you get hmm. to... Uh, you get to be your own boss. You get to have your own little corner of the universe that um, uh, that you can do as you wish with, and uh, you get a, a small team to work with, and uh, a fantastic opportunity to to serve people and to and to show them your hospitality. And I think at that time I had a very romanticized view of the industry and didn't really realize that perhaps it was uh, something of a challenge as well. Uh, <laughs> something <laughs> like most restaurants are not yes, profitable. Yeah. Like there, there is a challenge. Yeah. That's the, that's the one the, the vast majority fail in their first year, that kind of thing. <laughs> uh, and I, I guess at the time I, I, when I'd finished my, my schooling in, uh, in music, I was looking to become a, a conductor and a, a clarinetist, um, a classical musician. And I found that that was a very insular process. It was, it was one that was very, um, a lot of times by yourself, a lot of times studying scores, a lot of time where you, uh, you felt like there wasn't a great uh, element of success where you spent a lot of time failing. Uh, and to make ends meet, I, I got a job in a cocktail bar in Cambridge in the UK. And suddenly here was this opportunity where someone could come into the bar and order a drink and you'd make that drink. And three minutes later, the, the entire scenario is closed. You, you've got this, this great positive experience um, in such a short amount of time. So I guess for... for for me, it was that idea of uh, being able to uh, provide such a, a quick element of positivity like that and, and not spend hours and hours by yourself uh, <laughs> uh, struggling over something. I've been to Cambridge. We spent a day there a few years ago before the pandemic. Were, were you studying there or what brought you to Cambridge? Uh, so I was living there at the time. I, I didn't have the fortune to study there. Uh, I, was, I was working briefly as one of those. Beautiful. <laughs> My goodness. It's a stunning town. I'd, I'd love to love to go back there at some point. Um, I, I was actually working as a punt chauffeur there for a little while, uh, punting uh, punting tourists down the down the uh, the river, punting oh, out on, the colleges, and yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, which was a, a very short lived career that um, I don't think I'll be returning to for a number of reasons. 
But uh, the the cocktail bar definitely um, definitely got me excited in the industry and uh, got me started uh, to get me thinking about hospitality and uh, and learning that kind of trade. Wow. Now, so you started that in England. You started in Toronto for the most part, Darcy? Toronto. Yeah. Toronto, for those who have, every time I travel somewhere, people are like, oh, I love Toronto or I want to go see Toronto. But like, it's a world-class city. It's got like great theater, come from away, started in Toronto. I mean, it's got all the major productions. It's got uh, sports teams and a bit of a restaurant scene as well. So it was that you, you got into that right out of like university or how, how did that happen with you? Uh, I was actually a ski bum in Banff, Alberta. Ski bum. West. Was, oh, uh, that's fantastic. I talked to about sort of wanting to open my own business. So I went to college and took a small business degree uh, there. Mm. Went to be a ski bum and then sort of thought, you know, I think I'm missing something here by not going to university. So I just wanted the experience. My brother at the time was studying at Guelph in, um, in uh, animal science uh, to be a vet. Oh, yeah. So I applied to Guelph, got into a bunch of different business programs, and just uh, I'd been working at a hotel and a restaurant in Banff to sort of pay for my skiing expeditions and um, decided to study that at Guelph. In Guelph and Toronto, for those who don't know, is about probably a 45 minute drive away. So mm-hmm. great business school there. Yeah. And I got exposed to the Toronto restaurant scene, met some key people, and um, took a job that first, actually, that first time I went back to Banff because uh, I missed it. Uh, no skiing there in the summertime, but uh, back to hotels and restaurants in Banff. So Banff was the start of it in that tourist town uh, in hotels and restaurants and every job from serving breakfast to working night audit to front desk and everything. Uh, and then I got into a company called Oliver Bonaccini in Toronto, which is uh, arguably yeah. the best in Canada and worked and for them for a number, number of years. restaurants, right? Yeah, I think yeah. they're pretty much uh, across the country now with a portfolio of, I'm not sure, 30 different properties, but um, hmm. that was the real stepping stone. Wow. And then we're from cocktail bar to bit of a, how, how did you end up in Canada? <laughs> Good question. Uh, I think how many people end up in, uh, in different parts of the world from where they're from. Uh, love bought me be over here. Ah, there you go. Uh, <laughs> my wife, who I, I met, uh, was very fortunate to meet in London in the UK, uh, convinced me that this was, a, this was a wonderful part of the world. And I, I, I think she's largely very right. Uh, That's how a lot of people get into Canada, right? Come, it's like, you know, all that stuff. Well, she was smart. She, yeah, she yeah. took me on three consecutive summers. Um, oh, yeah. Don't before before showing me what the... Exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, and when we uh, immigrated to Canada, we uh, we arrived in March. Uh, oh. And I, I got the, the, the very worst month, I think, I moved Canada. up here in March, Tony oh, and yeah. I did, from Toronto. <laughs> I was 26 years ago. And we came up at night and we thought, oh, we'll see like the community in the neighborhood in the day. And then we came back in the day. It's like, oh, there's no community and there's no neighborhood. <laughs> we moved to the moon, Oro Medanti. But anyway, we're still here. We love it. Yeah. So then you moved here for love. And how many years ago was that? Uh, so that was, gosh, 2018, the beginning of 2018. Oh, yeah. Uh, so I spent a, a couple of years in in Toronto. Um was very fortunate to work with two uh, really amazing businesses down there with Chase Hospitality Group. Uh, down at uh, Young and Temperance, and then oh, yeah. with uh, Blue Blood at uh, uh, Casaloma with Liberty Entertainment Group, and learned I've, I find a huge amount at both places. Two uh, very different uh, but very glamorous uh, venues, uh, and was was very fortunate to get I, I think both of those both of those positions to give me the experience to to come up to to Aurelia. Right. So we're getting close to talking about opening uh, a successful business in a pandemic in a small town. But I'd love to know what were some of the business lessons you each learned 
prior to partnering together to open the common stove. Darcy, how about you? A number of years in Toronto, right? At this big high-end restaurant. Yeah, I spent uh, 15 years working for some really smart people. Um, Three companies in particular. So Oliver Bonchini was the starting point. I followed a really good uh, leader and boss uh, to a company called Sircorp, service-inspired restaurants for a few years. Returned to Oliver Bonaccini. Uh, had a great mentor there for for many years. Uh, a wonderful fellow named Bruce McAdams, who teaches actually at Guelph University now. Okay. In the hospitality, hospitality program. Um, and then the final sort of piece in, in my, um, I guess, education in restaurants really was working for a gentleman named Charles Caboose, who was sort of the Back in the day, was the nightclub king of Toronto uh, <laughs> okay. when people went out and danced all night long um, and then shifted into restaurants and now has hotels and condos and restaurants in Toronto and Miami and that kind of stuff. So um, that was really the sort of the final missing piece I felt working with mm-hmm. him and sitting down and signing checks and uh, doing some really sort of crucial things. And I left that job to open my own restaurant. So I owned a place in Toronto for eight years. Um a little restaurant in the middle of nowhere that uh, for a variety of reasons, we're, we're very fortunate to get a lot of uh, media attention and, and that was a success. And then- um, And what was that one called? That was called Farmhouse Tavern. And um, like I said- For those who know in, Toronto, we do have Canadian listeners. Where, whereabouts <laughs> was it in Toronto? Uh, near High Park in the junction, so the west end of the city. Oh yeah, kind of a, a little, trending area a little yeah, bit. It was, yeah, it uh, was, sh- you know, I should have bought a house there instead of <laughs> opening a restaurant. <laughs> we all should have bought a house so, there. Yeah. You know, but uh, I would have made more money if I bought and flipped a house in the time I had the restaurant. But uh, <laughs> that's a whole other story. Um, but even when we moved to Aurelia and I kept that restaurant and I commuted back and forth for four years and then um, was looking for something in Aurelia and um, met Simon and, uh, you know, it's a bit of a stroke of luck. That's kind of a funny story. Hmm. But uh, and I ended up selling the restaurant. I had a, a deal in place to sell the restaurant in February. And uh, that was obviously put on hold when the pandemic hit. And I kind of floated that through uh, right until June, which um, was, you know, stressful financially and, uh, and mm. mentally. But we got the deal done and um, it sold last June. And I spent 10 days there in July transitioning the, to the new owner. It's still the same same name and more or less the same place. Mm. So that was very exciting to see. And then I was able to focus uh, my full attention uh, here in Aurelia. Wow. What did you learn prior to the common stove? Some business lessons and that kind of thing. I think uh, I think a huge amount. Um, I, I guess I have a slightly different background uh, from Darcy in that way that I, I never actually studied this this industry. So I, I guess all of my learning was done, uh, luckily, with other people's money uh, in uh, in other people's restaurants. <laughs> uh, I was I feel probably most fortunate to have worked with a company called Hawksmore in the UK, where their motto there is is work hard and be nice to people, and that's uh, that's still a poster which they gifted me as I left. Which uh, is mm. hangs on my uh, on my wall just by the front door as a reminder to to myself every time when I leave That's the a house. Great reminder. Say that again. Uh, work hard and be nice to people. Okay. I, I I cannot think of a better motto for one's life, uh, let alone <laughs> let alone business. It, it appears in our handbook for common hospitality. Um, it's on our office wall. It's on our office oh, wall. Wow. <laughs> it's a it, it's a wonderful motto. We uh, we debated for a while. Uh, work hard and do the right thing. But I think work hard and be nice to people is both clearer and... That's really... Uh, it's more hospitable. It's more hospitable, exactly. exactly. We'll get back to that because you obviously do that well. That's one of the reasons we're having this Thank conversation. Thank you, yeah. uh, So work hard and be nice to people was a, was a wonderful inspiration because it, it suddenly made everything very transparent. If you yeah. are working hard and you are being nice to people, then you are doing well. 
So you're business owners now. You go into partnership. We can get into that in a second. What are the classic mistakes restaurateurs make? What are like, if you're going to open a restaurant and you want to fail in the first year, and we'll talk about all the extra stress of the pandemic, but in normal <laughs> conditions, most restaurants fail, right? Normal conditions. Yes. So in normal conditions, what are the classic mistakes restaurateurs make? I think there are a, a huge number, unfortunately. The, there are a lot of restaurants that are gifted to people or inherited by people through family or uh, gifted mm. through circumstance or through a building purchase or something like that. And one of the biggest uh, issues that I think uh, the, the industry has is that uh, there are a lot of people in those positions who are not restaurateurs. They are people who like having a restaurant or like the idea of having a restaurant. And if you like the idea of having a restaurant, then you're not going to be a very good restaurateur, I think. Because if you're standing at the bar and pouring a few beers for your mates uh, sat around and uh, saying, oh, don't worry about the bill, that's fine, I'll, I'll catch you, I'll catch you later. <laughs> um, and if you're not doing you know, the behind-the-scenes work, the real nitty-gritty of, um, uh, of making sure that your, your profit and loss is looking pretty successful, making sure that your team are really well looked after, making sure that you're not cutting corners, that you know, your suppliers are doing the right thing, is if you're not doing that, then you're not really looking after your business. And uh, I think it's very, very easy to get into the industry Without actually, uh, without actually having the acumen to do so. Hmm. I think one of the things Simon said earlier was he made some mistakes and with other people's money to start. <laughs> but that's so let's that, not say that too loudly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, but that's right, the right. idea of of working in the industry first and learning lessons and working with smart people and mentors and working for good companies and being exposed to the right way to do things as opposed to jumping into an industry blindly. I think. The restaurant industry is the most dynamic industry in the world. And I'd the reason I say agree. that hmm. is we touch on everything. And that's why I'm still engaged in it 25 years later and why I find it so fascinating every day. You know, we deal with real estate, we deal with marketing, we deal with staffing, we deal with finance and banking, um, music and design and uniforms and furniture, uh, guest interaction, human resources, all kinds of it. Like everything that is in the world of business hmm. to some degree or another falls under the umbrella of a restaurant. And, right. you know, sometimes you might sort of fall out of love, so to speak, with, um, you know, running food to tables and clearing plates, but you're still engaged in, in wine or cocktails. And then you get engaged with um, the marketing and the innovation and the ideas and the messaging and communication of the business. So there's always something to, to keep you coming back and to keep you engaged. Well, it would be very interesting because I think people, I, I didn't know you'd been in it for that long, Darcy. But I'm old. <laughs> there you go. Well, you, you're well-preserved. Um, but it's one of those things where I think a lot of us who have done something for a while, you kind of get bored with the business of it. You know, it's like, I just want to own it or I just want to be the hospitality person. But that's fascinating. You're right. I, I hadn't thought about that. And go ahead. And yeah. it, it's that diversity that makes it so fascinating. Right. The, the fact that, um, and I, I very much enjoy this. I'm, I'm pretty sure Darcy does as well that we can be doing 30, 40 different things across the day. It can be a mixture of, um, uh, of manual tasks and of um, mm. cerebral tasks. It can be a mixture of people stuff. It can be a mixture of financial stuff. It can be all sorts of stuff across the day. And that's what, for me at least, keeps me really interested. It keeps me working a, a long day without getting tired because you're constantly doing different stuff in your own little universe there in that restaurant. Mm. So let's talk about small town. Because, you know, it's easy to inter interview 
And we've done that here. CEOs of multi-million, multi-billion dollar organizations and mega church pastors and the whole deal. But but 90% of the listeners here are leading something small in a small town. So you've got this global experience you're bringing. And I love Aurelia, okay? We go there all the time. We have a location for a church there. I love it. If if I have a choice and my car has to point in one direction to go pick something <laughs> up, it'll point in the Aurelia direction. Because I have, you know, Stephen Leacock for the Canadians. That was Mariposa. And it, there's something very endearing about that town. It is not known for high-end dining. It is the graveyard of restaurants and coffee shops and so many entrepreneurial ventures that in 25 years I've seen come and go. So why Aurelia? And then the second part of that question is, how did you make upscale, excellent? And again, as someone who's had the privilege of eating all over the world, I would say world-class dining happen in a small town? I think we, <laughs> it's a very difficult question to answer because yeah. I think in both of our cases, we didn't have uh, uh, much option but to be in Aurelia. Love brought you there. Right? Uh, it did, love brought <laughs> yeah. me there. And, but you, uh, okay, but you could have opened a donut shop, which arguably would have done well. I, I, I think what we could have done in any other town or in a lot of other towns is open a place that didn't work as well because it wasn't as well supported by the community that we have in Aurelia. Hmm. Um, and there wasn't the the silent uh, group of people who I think clearly wanted uh, a restaurant like the common stove or a restaurant like picnic uh, that's that, that wanted to go to those places that didn't otherwise have a place to go. Mm. Um, and we, we often kind of think about how uh, in this case, the, the market was was sort of was hidden away somewhere in Aurelia for these restaurants. Yeah, but how restaurants. did you see that? Cause I didn't necessarily see that. I, in my case, it wasn't so much that it was something that um, that I saw. It was what I wanted to do and what I just thought was better. Ah, so it was a passion uh, project. I, absolutely. This, uh, which which is, I should say, a very dangerous way of getting into the restaurant business <laughs> if you just follow a pure passion project. Welcome However, bankruptcy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it was it was something that I I just thought this this is better. I, we can do a better restaurant than this. We can uh, we can have a better idea. We can execute it better. We can uh, uh, have a better group of people. Um, uh, it, it was the idea that there was there was the potential there to do something um, that was more unique and uh, and a way of doing a better restaurant. I think I think it's fair to say that had we not met each other, the common stove as it is now wouldn't exist. Okay, I wouldn't have done that on my own, and I don't think Simon would have done it on his own. But I was I'd been in town for six years looking for somewhere that I wanted to go to that I would enjoy um, spending an evening at, uh, looking to, for a place to have a cocktail after a show at the opera house or mm. a dinner in my day off from my restaurant in Toronto. And there was no such thing. So there was, um, you know, I, there was a void obviously, but also I could see and feel, I think the, what I call the town, but it's really the city of Aurelia, mm. but the town changing and something was sort of bubbling up. There was more people in my age group of our similar, maybe dem demographic coming back to town for professional careers moving back from Toronto, moving back from other cities. And those people were going to Toronto for the weekend, yeah. getting a hotel room <laughs> to dine out, to catch a show, to go to good restaurants. We did that a few times. Exactly, right? Mm -hmm. And they didn't do it in Aurelia because there was nothing for them in Aurelia. So instead of letting someone travel to Europe and spend thousands of dollars in restaurants, which a lot of people in Aurelia do, well, let's give them something to spend their money on in their own backyard. Yeah. And those people then sort of came out of the woodworks a little bit, I think, right? They were always there. They just didn't have something that to them was was worthy, I guess, in, in some ways. Well, and there was a good restaurant in town. And as we talked about when you guys got to my place, it's like, unfortunately, it got sold about just when you were moving mm -hmm. to Aurelia. 
And, you know, it wasn't quite the same after that. So that's a, that's a really interesting principle that sometimes we think we have to move. Sometimes we think, oh, this will never work in a community like this. But you really did bring that. So, so many factors, and you hinted at that already, Darcy, but so many factors go into a restaurant. I can't repeat the list that you shared, but I mean, it is decor, it is food, it is service, it is all of those things. Um, talk about the chemistry that makes for a good restaurant. That to me is vibe. I'll use the word vibe. Absolutely. So we have a list of five non-negotiables that we operate by. Okay. Number two is vibe. And that is the the energy, the feel, the mood, the body language, everything in the room that makes you sit back and go, I've made the right choice. I'm in the right spot. I can sit here. I can relax. I want to have an extra glass of wine. I want to spend a bit of money. Um, and it's just, it's, it's not an intangible thing, but it, it you know, you know it when you well, say, you it, nailed I vibe, you nailed vibe. Like you really did. So what goes into vibe? Uh, I remember actually when, uh, soon after Darcy and I first met and we spoke about, uh, the restaurant that we were considering putting together, you know, we were, we were interviewing each other, I suppose, as, uh, as potential business speed partners dating. at the time, <laughs> speed dating. Speed dating. <laughs> uh, luckily over a, over a long dinner. And one of the things that uh, attracted me to working with Darcy was that uh, he had in front of him a, a a pad with maybe 12 boxes on. And uh, as we went through our conversation, he filled in these these dozen boxes or so. And they were, they were all things that make uh, a great uh, holistic restaurant experience. They were all things about vibe. It was, mm. okay, well, what music do you want to play? What... Uh, uh, what's what's going to be on the menu? Of course, you know what's uh, what's the environment going to be like. What is going to be on the walls? What are the what do you consider for for seating options for tables for uh, what, are the what staff kind of position? Wear? What are the staff? What are the staff exactly. uniform yeah. contributes to the vibe yeah. of a restaurant, right? It either puts you at ease or it makes you feel a bit upright, mm. depending on on who you're sort of being looked after by and what they whether they're comfortable or not and whether they're whether they're at ease or not. Yeah, and I, I, you know, obviously it's hard in an audio format to describe the restaurant, but it's not super stuffy at all. It's not like, oh my gosh, you know, I need to be wearing a suit, that kind of thing. You can come in in your street clothes. The, the how would you describe the 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 dress of the staff? It's a casual, professional. That's that's what we yeah. that's what we aim for. We uh, so what we are the criteria? Well, we we want in general to divorce that idea that um, for something to be really good in a restaurant setting, it needs to be dressed up and fancy. Yeah, it doesn't need to be. It just needs to be good at heart. It needs to be good at the core. So our staff are dressed in a, a branded T-shirt, dark dark jeans, dark comfortable shoes, and uh, a simple uh, denim apron. Mm-hmm. They they but all the simple look- denim apron. Was, you know, it's an expensive, cool apron <laughs> that we had lots of back and forth about. Hmm. Like we spent a, a ridiculous amount of time shopping for just the right apron that got just the right message across to people about what kind of place we were. What does the apron say? Uh, the apron is, uh, you know, it's, it's a long denim apron that has um, uh, a sharp, I think, snazzy brown sort of wrap around. Um, and it's that idea of, of a long apron, which is sort of classic bistro, hmm. but it's denim. Um, it's It's got a bit of sort of utility to it. Um, it's a little bit edgy, I think, and it just lets people, that apron, they all have the exact same apron. They're all wearing their own jeans underneath. Uh-huh. They're all wearing their own sneakers underneath that. But there's a bit of uniformity to what that is. And like Simon said, they have the, the branded t-shirt. 
So it's a mix of stuff that we're asking them to wear and a mix of stuff that they are really comfortable. And that's really, uh, you know, themselves. Your server in a restaurant doesn't need to be in a, in a really tight, identical uniform. Uh, if, if, if they're doing their job, they'll, they'll, you don't need to know uh, who your server is by, uh, by making sure they're in the right cut and they're in the, they're in the right uniform. Uh, they, can, they can demonstrate their, their character and their personality um, just through who they are. And they can demonstrate their professionalism by the, the actions of their service at the table. So let's uh, double click on team for a moment because we are in a midst where, you know, according to all the press and you guys know your industry way better than I do, it's almost impossible to get service people right now. And uh, you seem to have not only staff, but good staff, knowledgeable staff, friendly staff, uh, which is hard. Uh, Talk about how you're recruiting, how you're cultivating that, and then how you train them. Because there, there seems to be a vibe. It's not like a uniformity, but there is a, a knowledge to your team, a caring to your team. It shows. Your people have been through a process. Excellent, yeah. Uh, we, we recruit on character, I think, is, is probably number mm-hmm. one. We look for individuals. We look for, we look for people who, who we like to spend time with. <laughs> I, I, I often think in the interview, you know, do I want to go for a drink with this person? Do I want right. to sit down and continue this conversation for for longer than the 20 minutes we're going to spend chatting today. Those, those kind of things. Uh, and if you recruit the right character, if you recruit someone who, who cares and someone who sees this as, as more than just work and they see it as uh, an integral part of their life, and if they see the, the quality of what we're doing and they, they want to reflect that and they want to be a part of that, they want to be uh, a cultural part of that, then that, that, that's, that job is, is done in the, in the interview and in those very early stages in, in our minds, almost anything else, any any hard skill, whether you can carry a tray, whether you can <laughs> dice a shallot, um, whether you can uh, adequately manage a wood-fired grill, that can be taught. We, we have specialists uh, in those positions and we, we know a, a decent amount about that ourselves. We can teach those things. But what we can't teach is, is someone to be a, a wonderful, empathetic character. But there's a, there's a talent war going on. And, you know, most places can't even stay open in the regular hours or are short-staffed or that kind of thing. So, why, like, are people lining up to join Picnic in the Common Stove? Or are you recruiting? Or what are you doing? You know, it's, it's funny. Uh, it's interesting timing for that question because summer's over. Yeah, uh, yeah. We had one employee go back to school who was still a student. Mm. Um, we had one employee go back to Toronto whose fiancé is a, a chef at a very uh, popular and hot spot in Toronto. Um so we lost uh, two or three people to, to circumstances like, like that. And we've just, I think, hired in the last two weeks um, two people that we're really comfortable with and confident with. And hmm. I don't want to say it wasn't hard, but we've been very fortunate uh, compared to others around us, for sure. You know, some places in town have had to close on different days because of short you know, staffing issues. Again, we've been fortunate that way that people have uh, stuck with us. And um, when someone does move on, there seems to be hmm. fortuitously someone uh, right behind to take their spot. And we don't have to train too much. I don't think like that, that Simon talked about character. One of our, I saying earlier, our non-negotiables is characters with character. And if you hmm. are able to, like we spend a lot of time trying to find those people, but once you find someone that has the right character, it makes the rest of the work after that a lot easier. And there is less training required and there is less managing of them required. 
I'm glad you went back to the five non-negotiables. So we talked about vibes, characters with character. That's fine. So what is that? Like personality? Yeah, personality first. Hmm. Hmm. Um, it's personality first and the rest will follow. Right. If you have the right personality, if you are someone who is empathetic towards others, if you are someone who is individual, which we, which we love at uh, both restaurants, uh, and if you are someone who who recognizes um, that uh, that you, you you don't know everything in life, and mm. you're on a constant kind of journey of uh, of learning and discovery, and you're you're interested in being a part of that, then fantastic. What are the other three non-negotiables? With so much yeah, you're your, looking at uh, my looking key at values, values on the mantle place of the fireplace. A little bit you, of overlap there. You said that. It's funny. Ours are serve first, battle mediocrity. These are company values for my company. Uh, so serve first, battle mediocrity, surprise and amaze, pursue health, choose trust, err on the side of generosity and have fun. That's what we want our company to be about and the team to be about. So our first one is, is profit first. Ah, yeah. And it's not necessarily that we want to, we're not money hungry. But we realize that without it, we can't do what we yeah, want yeah. to do. Is that based on that book by Michael? I can't remember his last name called Profit First. Uh, very much so, I think. Yeah, that, yeah. That something That's I was reading when we, when we first met, and it's how we've set up our bank accounts and that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. So you got five bank accounts yeah. or whatever that is. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's worked well for us. Yeah, okay, um, great. So Profit First, uh, Vibe, I think is number two. And then we have uh, Taste, Taste, Taste with exclamation marks. So our third one is the word taste three times. And always uh, on our end, to always be tasting the food and reevaluating and assessing for consistency, for flavor, for um, all the dynamics that are important in that. Mm. And then we have um, leadership. So we, the role that we must play inside the company and in the community and, and leading ourselves first and, and leading our team and trying to be leaders within our, our industry. Uh, and then characters with character. Hmm. Those are great values. Taste, taste, taste. I guess it could be pretty easy. Like you change up your menu more frequently, I think, than most restaurants do. I'm still lobbying for the return of chicken to your menu. I know why you won't put it on, but that's okay. Uh, we'll, we'll win that battle in the long haul. Um, it was so good, fire roasted chicken. So I guess I, one of the things, the common stove, and we'll talk about picnic as well, but the first restaurant, the common stove, one of the things that caught my eye was it's this huge like wood burning hearth that you have where you cook all of your meat and a lot of your food, you'll smoke some salad on there. And it's as a, as a guy who loves his big green egg, that got me the first time, but it's everything else that keeps me coming back because the menu is the menu, but the vibe and, and you two in particular, I want to ask you about that. But um, my point being to this question, there is a point that, uh, that it would be very easy just to assume that the ribeye tastes as good as when you decided to put it on the menu or that, um, you know, this new pasta that you created is awesome. So how does that work? Do you have to do quality control in a restaurant and explain that? Because I think I, I challenge my staff all the time. We think about the website from an inside perspective or the podcast, but we don't think about it enough as an outsider. So I'm always saying we got to go in there and pretend this is your first navigation with our website because you know where everything is hidden but other people don't. Is it a similar thing to that? Taste, it's, taste, taste? It's very similar. Yeah. I think one of the biggest challenges we have in this industry is that uh, we work, whatever it is, uh, 250 days of the year in that restaurant, um, seeing service and seeing every night 15 ribeyes go out. So, you know, <laughs> do, do the math on that one. But uh, 
there are a, a huge number of uh, situations where we are doing something repetitively time and time and time and time again. Our grill cooks are cooking the same items time and time again. Our bartenders making the same cocktails, pouring the same wines. Uh, however, for our guests, they're often coming in for their 10th wedding anniversary. Mm. They're coming in for their 40th birthday. They're coming in for a unique, special, fantastic experience. Even our regular guests, our most regular guests are seeing, you know, one hundredth of the uh, <laughs> of the dishes uh, leave the kitchen as we are. And that to me is one of the biggest challenges that for the guest, it's they're expecting it to be exceptionally special every mm. time. And for us in our workplace and for our team, we have to make it exceptionally special every time. And, and, and that's, that's, that balance uh, is, a, is a really fun one to work at. How do you do that? Taste, taste, taste. Taste, taste, taste. <laughs> um, but I, th- I think it's when you do things consistently, inconsistency creeps in, right? Mm-hmm. So you take it for granted because you're always doing the same thing. So we're always tasting the stuff. We're always sort of revisiting things. And the biggest thing I find, a lot of young cooks don't get to eat out the way that our guests do, right? Yeah. And it's often the same. It happens with wine too. So you have a server at a table who oftentimes hasn't had the opportunity to drink the the style of wine or the type of wine uh, that the guest they're serving has, mm. right? So sometimes a guest is very well-traveled, has a really big cellar at home, and they just happen to know more about wine than the server does. That, that happens sometimes. But with cooks, they you make a dish, you decide on the dish is going to go on the menu, and then oftentimes they kind of forget about it. It's on the menu. Mm-hmm. But then you give that dish to someone else in the team to cook. It's never the chef. The chef doesn't cook every dish. that The, right. the, the chef cooks nothing that the actual guests get, right? <laughs> it's the team of cooks doing that. So there's a gap there as well. But also we taste a spoonful and we say, yeah, it's good. That's seasoned right. But what the guest does is the guest has 12 spoonfuls mm. or they have 14 forkfuls to finish the whole dish. And oftentimes in our kitchens, the young cooks don't eat the whole dish the way a guest does. So that's a, a, strong, a constant battle to say, okay, stop. Never mind the first bite was fine. Have eight more bites. Mm. Now the heat starts to build. Or now you realize it's a bit too salty. Um, or, oh my gosh, you know, I've had three bites and the acidity is killing me. So that's the one thing that we're sort of always on on a daily basis is, is again, taste, taste, taste. I think, go ahead, Simon. And that's, that's prevalent across the whole restaurant. Uh, you can have a cocktail, which when it first comes to your table and uh, when it's tasted by the bartender, it's at its strongest and its coldest that it ever will be. Now, the, the perfect point of that cocktail is somewhere through uh, a guest's 50-minute uh, uh, drink of it, uh, that where, where, it's, where it's at its absolute peak. And again, by the time you've had 15 sips of that, it's the same with the temperature. If we're running around uh, across the restaurant, then we're feeling like we're a little bit warm. Well, mm. a guest is sat down for the whole time. The, the, the ambient temperature needs to be correct for them. Uh, we're, we're constantly having to adjust that, uh, that, that idea of how we experience the restaurants and how a guest experiences the restaurant and trying to see it from their point of view. I, I think uh, we, we probably do the same, the same thing. Uh, at the very start of a shift or you know, a few minutes before the start of a shift, uh, I will stand at the front door looking across towards the, uh, the wood fire grill, looking to the, the host stand, basically as if coming in for the first time as a guest and you look to see is is everything perfect is everything clean is everything tidy is everything aligned uh, is everyone standing in place is everyone walking with purpose is everyone uh, doing what they're supposed to do does everything look right is the lighting right is the music light is the temperature right and that can be uh, can be a real challenge to see 
the restaurant, to see the environment that is so familiar to us from a guest perspective, looking at it for the first time. Oh, I completely agree. Like, you know, Andy Stanley has this famous talk about the old green couch and Andy's been on the podcast a bunch, but it's like, this is your favorite sofa. You've watched all your movies there. You saw Raiders of the Lost Ark on it. And you don't realize it's gotten tattered, a little bit stained. The fabric's a little bit worn. You just don't see it. But fresh eyes, I always say to my company, the employees, you know, fresh eyes are the best eyes. So if someone's new with us, I'm like, tell me everything we've missed. Tell me everything. How do you see that as a leader? How do you walk in and see Picnic or the common stove like a guest sees it? You can't, and you need to force yourself into into doing that. Is it like a to, mental checklist? It, it it is in many ways, but it's uh, as, as Darcy said earlier. It's it's vibe. It needs to feel right, and there are two dozen things that go into that. That's that are part of that mental checklist in in both restaurants. Um, but it it is assessing the vibe uh, as as you walk in, and within those few seconds, gathering that information as uh, as a guest would. One of the beauties of having two restaurants two blocks apart is oftentimes you'll leave one and run into the other. So when you're running into the other one, sometimes it's the back door or the front door, but you're walking into it in the middle of service with a fresh set of eyes. Mm. So it's quite easy to catch that. Oh, the music's a little bit low. Cause now the room, you know, you set the music earlier, the room is filled up. The music's not loud enough anymore. Mm-hmm. Or the sun has set since we sort of touched the lights. And now that it's darker out, the lights need a bit more dimming. Then you leave that restaurant after being there for 45 minutes and you know, running around and helping out and shaking hands and so forth. You head back up the street to the, to the next restaurant. And again, maybe the bathrooms are sort of gotten dirty in the last hour, or mm. now the, the nights started winding down and the music's now too loud because the room's getting a bit thinner. So going back and forth between two restaurants, I think actually helps us uh, catch those things, to be honest. Can you train your staff to see that stuff? Or do you train your staff to see that stuff? <laughs> Every leader knows what you're talking about. And yet sometimes I'm like, how does nobody else see this? Oh. You, can <laughs> you can to some extent. And I think we're very fortunate at uh, Common Stove in particular, and I'm sure we will soon be at a Picnic 2 as the restaurant gets older. That uh, We have a number of the team who've been there since the very beginning um, mm. and who are now culturally invested in that in that business it's it's very much a part of their life and that's something we we really look for is is for people to 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 see it as as more than just just a job now for a lot of those individuals i think they're they're really starting to pick up that that sense of vibe and uh, as we get uh, uh drawn in different ways with with two different restaurants um that we're relying on those individuals to do just that how does one actually accomplish it? I think it's 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 empowering them and giving giving them the uh, the ability to make to make those changes and to really look at it holistically and to think: Is the vibe right? Does it feel right? Mm. The mistake and the trap in that for us is to just do it. Right? You walk right. into a room yeah. and you just touch the lights without showing or telling anyone. The key to it, which is the hard part, is to bring someone with you and say, "Hey, we're going to just adjust these lights a bit, and here's why." We're going to touch the music up and here's why. Hmm. But the the default mechanism is to come in and do it yourself. And so that's the trap, I think. Yeah. And within those five seconds, you need to dispel that frustration that the situation isn't perfect and <laughs> communicate your adjustment. I got to ask you, do you play with the voice of an inner critic? I know for myself as a leader, I can walk into a room, in my case, a church, and tell you almost immediately what's wrong. 
that light is burnt out. This should, the volume's too high. It's too low. The mix is wrong. Uh, why did the videographer shoot it this way? Like I have that inner critic in my head. Do you have that as restaurateurs? If that's even a term. hundred percent. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So how, how do you manage that tension? Like, can you enjoy your food? Like how, how does that, cause you both got into this because you <laughs> loved it. Right. Which is how we all get into leadership. Yeah. Going to eat somewhere else. I can turn it off very easily. Oh really? Um, okay. Unless we're, we're going, so we just came back actually from New York city with our chef for 47 hours and 13 incredible restaurants. But so that was, uh, that was by design an exercise and critique and analysis and study. But if I go for dinner with my wife on whatever night, um, I can turn it off. And I understand also everything that can go wrong, mm. right? So there's a bit more leniency and a bit more patience, especially with, with people. Um, the only thing I can really think of, I was having dinner at a really very good restaurant in, in Nashville one year. And it was a great meal. And I was losing my mind because there's cobwebs up in the lights. <laughs> it, was just, it was just eating away at me. And I, and I walked yeah. out of the restaurant and they said, thanks very much. I was going to say, good, good, good. And I took a step out into sort of the porch of the restaurant or out the front door. And I thought, you know what? I, I just can't. You tell and me. I went back in and I said, you know what, guys? You, this is an amazing place. Great restaurant. But you got to tackle your cobwebs. And that's really the only time I've ever done that in my life. Mm. Uh, <laughs> but I just, it, it was so sort of out of place for that restaurant. And they're better than that. Yeah. Um, that I said something. But other than that, I've, I've never done that before. Wow. Wow. It's a very healthy habit to have, though. I mean, as, as my wife would attest, I'm sure I find that actually very difficult to switch off in another restaurant. Um, I certainly find it impossible to switch off in in our own restaurant. And it's a very, it's a very healthy habit because that, the, that sort of spotting those minute things that to you are disastrously wrong and mm. to a guest maybe individually aren't an issue are collectively an issue for the guest and undoubtedly for you collectively are a huge deal. And that, that's, that's how you, you gradually make something better by taking those, those little bits that stick out and aren't quite right and adjusting and adjusting. How do you modulate your outside voice? I, I find that I can be so hypercritical of things that go wrong. And I've gotten better at this over the years. This is Again, my secret to leadership is I made mistakes for 25 years. Now you don't have to. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> you know, I found that I could be very quickly demoralizing my team because I come in and like there's cobwebs on that light and this isn't right and the music's too loud, it's too soft, the, the mix is off. Oh my goodness, the camera work was shaky. What's going on? You know, and I'm always concerned about production because that's sort of where I live. But how do you make sure that that criticism stays healthy for the restaurant, but not demoralizing to your staff. I think healthy can be that you can achieve as much with a with a positive comment, with uh, appreciating when someone's doing something really, really well, mm. um, as you can with a critique of something which isn't going well. Because it's all about setting, uh, aligning people to to, to the uh, things that you have that you hold hold dear to what makes a really great restaurant in this case. And if you're aligning someone's top level and saying that that's really fantastic. Well done. That's, that's exactly how it should be. Mm. Then you, you draw up uh, all, all of the other occasions where maybe it isn't quite right. I love how quickly you serve that table as opposed to 
yelling at them for not serving it quickly enough. Absolutely. You know, the, yeah. the, the color on that steak is fantastic. You know, it's, it's been mm. really well tended. It's been really evenly cooked. And okay, now I'm nervous brilliant. about dinner, but keep going. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but that's, that, that, that's to me is, is far more, is far more helpful than saying the color on that steak is poor. You need to do this next time. Right. How do you modulate Fortunately that? for me, and unfortunately for Simon, is that if I walk in, I'm certainly a little more sort of quick to react or um, maybe intense about things. But I'll go to Simon and say, how come this is happening? Or how come that's happening? I don't go up to the individual right. employee per se. Mm. Uh, so he's my sounding board and calms me down. But um, but still, the, the sort of the come to the question is, how come this is happening? Or why is this the situation? Not not about the individual, mm. just that why are we in this position? Why has this happened or what's going on? And sort of he'll, you know, help me process that. And then we'll sort of, right. um, well, then we'll take we're, the next step after that. We're all leaders. We all know that it is it is our fault, ultimately. Oh, yeah, <laughs> it is. Had we made different decisions, the situation would be different. And where I've landed, because we don't do live events, it's a virtual company now. But when I was a lead pastor of Connexus, I had a buffer. It was Justin, Sarah, and Jeff who got my unfiltered feedback and I would be like, oh, this is terrible. Like, oh, go fix it. I'm going to lose my mind. And But if again, if I do that to someone who's volunteering, I've crushed them. Or if I do that to a junior staff member, I've, I've, I've ruined their week. And so those are people who knew me, loved me, could be the buffer. And I would modulate it even with them. But I think that's a... That's a good principle because, you know, you got in it. And, and I love what you said earlier, Darcy. You know, you've been doing this for 25 years and you still love it, which is kind of the goal for all of us, right? All of us. So the trip to New York. I remember one of the last times we were in the restaurant, you said, yeah, we're, we were trying to set this interview up. And you said, well, we're going to New York for a couple of days. We're taking our chef, who, by the way, congratulations, voted one of the top 30 under 30 in Canada, which is a big deal. You guys have got multiple accolades. But um, you took him to New York. Tell me the thinking. Tell me about that trip, the thinking behind it, and what happened. Well, it was a, a realignment, I think, as much as anything else. Um, it started off with us thinking uh, we wanted to we wanted to thank uh, Chef Ben for the work he's put in over the summer, and I think it very rapidly became uh, a realignment of saying that we are really happy with what we've done this summer in this restaurant, in this town, in this small part of the world. Uh, but about uh, 90 minutes flight away or whatever it was is probably the the greatest culinary city in the world. Mm. Uh, so let's go. Let's uh, let's uh, taste, taste, taste at a number of fantastic restaurants. Let's check out the vibe at a number of fantastic restaurants, some of the very best in the world, and see what we can learn and see what we can bring back and realign ourselves to uh, to our ultimate goal, which is to be one of the very best restaurants in Canada. We ate and drank really well. Yeah, I bet you did. Had a I lot did. of fun. For our New but, York you know, listeners, was, what were some of the restaurants you hit? Uh, our first stop was La Bernadette, and that was uh, exceptional. We missed our first flight because um, our COVID results weren't back yet. So we got to, <laughs> we had a two-hour delay. We took a two-hour flight um, called La Bernadette, and they were very gracious and pushed us back an hour, and we we made it just in time. But I had a phenomenal lunch there. Um, I think probably your favorite was Crown Shy. I'm not, I don't know. Yeah, Crown Shy was a, a, a spectacular new restaurant. Again, as a uh, looking at the vibe of the place was was stunning. It was energetic. It was buzzing. Um, it was uh, pretty much everything was was on point in terms mm. of you know music, in terms of uh, atmosphere, <laughs> temperature, all those kind of things. Um, the cocktails were perhaps some of the best I've uh, I've tasted, and uh, 
we would have undoubtedly tasted and loved more of the food had we uh, had we not been incredibly full from our previous uh, <laughs> our previous restaurants. Occupational hazard. Yeah, you guys are both thin, by the way. I, I'm, I, I was saying to you, man, if I had your job, I, I would not fare well. Uh, oh, that's good to know. Yeah. There's uh, also a new place uh, that opened up, actually, Simon's old company from the UK called Hawksmore mm-hmm. had just opened in New York. And, um, you know, we have their cookbook, uh, or I've, I've sort of learned about the company through their cookbook. But it was very uh, interesting for uh, Chef and I to go and experience a Hawksmore. And Simon had some old friends there, and I'm sure he had a, a blast. But it was just really uh, an interesting opportunity for us to see and learn more about sort of what where he came from, right? Mm. Um, so that was a unique opportunity. Yes, that was uh, that was probably the the biggest influence on 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 my career, but also on on who I am as an individual. I think uh, right. from my professional life, uh, I, I learned a huge amount there and was. Uh, I'm incredibly gracious to to that team there, and I'm hugely delighted that they've uh, mm. they've opened in in the other great culinary city in in New York now. So I know we've kind of danced around this throughout the whole conversation, but when you go to a restaurant, and I've asked Horst Schultz this, the founder of Ritz Carlton, so he has his own opinion, but I'd love your take on what makes for a great experience. What are you looking for? Uh, I really enjoy having fun with the staff, mm. right? So if, if I can sort of have a joke and they respond and then sort of, you know, we're off to the races, um, I enjoy that. I look for that a little bit. And then again, I just like when it feels right, when the lighting's right, the music's right, then I'm at ease and I'm just so content to be there. The, the beautiful thing about this industry or my career is that I get to relax and enjoy inside my very own industry and field right like it's it'd be like a i don't know if you know if you get an nhl player or would want to really go sit and watch another nhl team play on a tuesday night in the <laughs> with a half full arena and, and be thrilled about it right yeah but yeah. we get to go to other restaurants and, and we're oftentimes thrilled about it so that's a, a unique thing i think that we are, are fortunate to have um but again i think to me it just comes down to the vibe being right ah simon for you yeah i I think a, a lot of it stems for me from the idea that you are responsible for someone's experience in the time that they're with you. You're, you're responsible for curating two and a half hours of someone's time. You are their maitre d', you are their, their concierge for, for the amount of time that they're, they're in the restaurant. We, we ask our front of house team to, to do a, a really tough job, which is within seconds of interaction and within minutes of a guest being in a restaurant, uh, assess what they are looking for and assess what they want. Wow. And that's that's spectacularly difficult. And particularly when, you know, on a busy night, uh, you might be serving five, maybe even six tables, and you have to spin around from one and spin around to another and have a completely different pair or quartet of guests there. Uh, and their ability to do that and to uh, to adjust to different guests is, for me, is is a big part of that um, that vibe. I I remember very much um, uh, when you go to a restaurant, particularly particularly in in Toronto and London, on on really sort of busy Friday lunches uh, where you know people are sat very very quickly. You've got uh, a lot of sort of business twos and fours, um, and often uh, it can lead to restaurant teams being quite stretched and a very a very sort of busy energetic service. And knowing that's you know sat in in the line, and you you can see your server coming towards you, you think oh, maybe it's been it's been a minute or two. I haven't been I haven't been seen yet, but there's this fantastic uh, server coming towards me, who's 
I'm so excited to meet. Um, I'm so excited to have uh, to have a chat to. Uh, to to me, a, a server being able to adjust their service to that guest is is the biggest thing that makes makes or breaks an experience. I would agree. The food is really important, but the server is so important and the level of service. My two pet peeves are it took forever to be seen. Nobody even came to get you a glass of water to get started. And you guys do great on that. But then also that that pause between, okay, we're finished and where's the bill, right? <laughs> that That can sometimes go on forever. And it drives me crazy because when I want to be done, I'm done. Now, you know, we've had like four or five hour dinners at your restaurant. You've been very gracious <laughs> in giving us the table. If we have friends and we're out, you know, just having a wonderful, wonderful night, that is not a rush night. There are other times where, uh, you know, I, we tend to be longer when we go out for dinner, but when you're done, you're kind of wrapped up and you guys do that well. On your reservation form, and I've been listening to a number of travel things in part to prepare for this, but uh, it seems that it's a trend in hospitality to say, what are you celebrating, right? Birthday, anniversary, uh, people in town. I believe you have that in your online reservation form. To what extent is that, and, and obviously not in your case, lip service. And to what extent, like, how, how do you, how do you, is that like a real thing? Like you really care what people are celebrating or what they want to accomplish? It's a fairly standardized uh, form. And I think it does help to give us a clue. Yeah. Uh, I, my hope is that if people are celebrating a birthday uh, or their anniversary or something like that, or whether they're after a quiet business meeting or whether they're just finished a celebration of life, whatever it is, that uh, our, our team will be able to discover that by themselves within a few yeah. minutes anyway. Um, it, it's not necessarily worn on the cuff, but uh, with uh, a little intuition, you can you can get that information out of someone without them ticking a box on their online reservation. Right. Both of you, have the ability, and I don't know quite how to phrase this, but um, again, like all listeners, I've eaten all over the place in many, many different restaurants, but you have the ability, when I walk into that restaurant, it was almost from the first visit, to make me feel like I'm the only person in the place. And I don't know how that is, because you have a thousand customers, but what is that? And I don't know. It's really special. It's one of the things that keeps me coming back and one of the reasons we're having this conversation. You you will usually, not always, but come over and say hello and, you know, connect. And we had a pretty good personal connection from the beginning. But again, I've eaten at lots of restaurants. I've never interviewed anybody whose restaurant I've gone to. And it's made a very special impression in my life to the point where if anybody comes into town, there's one place we're going. They may get tired of it one day. I'm not. But it's to your restaurants, uh, one of the two. Do you know what, like, how does that happen? How do you make people feel special in a restaurant? I would say, like, it's an enormous compliment that you came back and continue to come back, mm. right? So we've done something. The minute you open the door and we see you again, yeah, I've just, you've just confirmed that we've done something right. Mm. So it's exciting. Wow. Like, yeah, cool, we won. Like, you know, we, we succeeded. <laughs> when you open yeah. the door again and we saw you last week or a month ago, and it's been, you know, maybe the fifth time in the last two months. It's so encouraging yeah. because it, it's, it's reinforcement that we're doing things right. So by the guest, that familiar face opening the door, it's so exciting and so gratifying mm. to us, number one. And then secondly, I would say that, you know, something I learned a long time ago from Peter Oliver is that people are hungrier for recognition than they are for food. So if we can wow. recognize people 
and show that we recognize them and make them feel seen, that's a lo- you know over half the battle, right? So that that's my wow. sort of thoughts on that. But Simon, no, I, I think that's, that's that's a very a very good point. It's uh, and, and you're very gracious to say that um, uh, that's 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 how we act. I I think number one is that when you walk through the door or any number of our, our regular guests walk through the door and we're sort of the host stand and we say, oh, hello, yeah. how are you doing? You do. That's, that to me is, that, that to me is very genuine. I should clarify. Well, and I know because, I'm not the only I, one. I, I, I know I'm I not the only one. I see you do this with many people. You are not, question. unfortunately. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, that, that is, that is very genuinely the, our, yeah, our truthful true reaction. Time, yeah. Yeah. Um, because of exactly as Darcy said, we are excited to see you. It feels like, fantastic we've done something right because this guy's back um and it's, it's also just nice to nice to see people that you like but uh if if you don't have that as a as a host as a restaurant owner as a maitre d whatever it is if you don't have that initial uh reaction to to your regular guest then you're probably in the wrong industry uh, i'm sure one of the reasons why darcy and i are in this industry is because we like other human beings we, we like people and we like people who have character uh like yourselves and like so many of our regular guests so it's it's very genuine delight that uh, that greets our, our regular guests through the door um, for for both those reasons. Yeah, I think there's a lot of people who are in the wrong industry then because that is wonderful. <laughs> you know, I have that same way. I was I was back on the road for the first time this month, and this will air months after we record it. But uh, I was in Dallas, and I was in um, Boston, and I'll soon be in Nashville. But connecting with podcast listeners that never gets old, or people who read a book. It's like I might have in a normal year a thousand of those interactions and every single time it's like, I can't believe I get to do this. Like, this is so cool. So that is that is really fun. And you're right. It's privileged air if you get to do that for a living. Speaking of making a living, one restaurant, then two in a pandemic. You guys pivoted like crazy. I thought we'd spend a lot of time on that. But I do think the next few years, pandemics notwithstanding, are going to be unpredictable. You had supply chain issues. You had uh, availability issues. I I think when you look at the next few years, the predictions are that the unpredictability will continue in different ways. Um, What were some of the key moves you made? Because you opened the common stove in February of 2020. We went into lockdown in March. Congratulations, 30 days wide open. Picnic opened what? Spring of 2021? Yes, yeah, Mother's Day weekends, 2021. Mother's Day weekend, so May of 2021. And again, we were in a super tight lockdown then, which lifted. And you've got two restaurants and you're in business almost two years after you started. Talk to us about that. Crazy, like you were pivoting all the time. Yes, and I I think uh, a certain amount of that came out of necessity. We uh, shut down Common Stove on whenever it was, the 15th, 16th of March, 2020, after having been open for maybe 10 or 12 trading days. <laughs> uh, you know, we, we were we were still cutting checks for, uh, for trades who'd helped us get open after we'd been <laughs> shut down for the pandemic. Uh. Um, so uh, a part of it was through necessity. But I think we were both very quick to, um, to want to be uh, leaders in, this was uh, before we, we actually had our, um, are kind of non-negotiables that we were very quick to ha- uh, to want to to lead in the area of of being the very best uh, the very best restaurateurs in that in that in that area. Uh, we wanted to lead. We wanted to show that um, we were doing something 
uh, differently. And we didn't have a regular customer base. We had those who'd been into the restaurant in those first 10 days, plus our family and friends who knew who we were. And, you know, at the time, probably a few hundred uh, Instagram followers. Uh, we we needed to innovate. We needed to to try new things. In many ways, you know, we were lucky because when you open a restaurant, you're often wiser to sort of, um, you know, do, start with a few things and then sort of grow, right? Right. So we hadn't done, um, on the first two weeks, there was no Sunday roast yet. It was in our plans. Ah. Uh. But let's introduce that a month down the road once things are going smoothly and so on. We had a plan for that. Um, we have some bar. Start at uh, Sunday roast. So we got lucky. We, we actually hadn't introduced the Sunday roast yet. It was part of our plan, but it hadn't launched yet. We have a bar seating at the main bar and bar seating at the kitchen bar. And we always had a plan to have a, a phenomenal, you know, the best burger ever. Uh, on, what you do. <laughs> on the, thank you. On the, on the bar menu. Yeah. But it wasn't yet on the restaurant menu. So two of the sort of, you know, quick and easy things really, uh, once we got locked down, was to introduce a burger for takeout, which no one had seen yet. So it kind of worked in our favor. Ah. Then we started doing the Sunday roast, which Simon was really hesitant to, about the quality of that and how to pull that off and how to execute it properly via takeout. But in a strange kind of way, we were lucky that no one had seen the Sunday roast yet. So mm. everybody came out to try it, right? We, If you think of it, we were asking people to leave their house in the dead of winter to drive to a really unknown restaurant yeah. to pick up a box of food. And bring it That's home. That's crazy. And in bring my home. case, a half hour yeah. round trip. So yeah. it's a risk on our end because we worry about what you experience when you come home and open the box. But the fact that people gave us that opportunity and kept supporting us uh, was really you know, quite phenomenal. Well, and what, what amazed me, I remember maybe it was around Mother's Day of 2020. So we'd been locked down like most of the world for a couple of months. And it was what it was but you did the steaks the ribeye which is incredible and you started them at the store and you got them to like you know blue rare or whatever and it had that nice smoke flavor and then you'd pick up the box and it's like finish this at home here's how to do it in the oven here's how to do it on the stovetop here's how to do it on the barbecue and so I literally because they were already smoked threw them on the Weber grill the gas grill and they were fantastic and then you even gave a pinch of salt to like finish it off. And that made the 30 or $50 steak or whatever it was worth it at, at the time. How did you come up with those ideas? Because nobody else was doing it. By the time, if you brought any other, first of all, higher end dinner, you know, restaurants weren't doing takeout. They were just like, we don't know what to do. And if they were, by the time you got at home, you might as well have paid $10 for the meal because that's what it tasted like, right? How did, what was your thinking to, to get to that stage? Uh, I, th- I think in this case, I'm I'm very fortunate to be partnered with uh, with Darcy on this one, seeing as uh, Darcy has a, an unending trail of ideas, the vast majority of which are, are, are excellent. And whilst uh, I, being a little bit more cautious by nature, and you know, endlessly sort of thinking of, oh, well, what are the unforeseen consequences of this? You know, what could happen? What might happen? What if? What if we let, let's work it out a little bit more? Let's think about it. Let's. Uh, I'm very lucky to have Darcy saying, no, let's just let's try that. Ship it. <laughs> Ship it. <Here> go. <laughs> Real artist ship, right? Uh, so. And as I say, 90% of the time that, um, uh, that turns out really well. And, and I think across the course of that, those initial first three takeout months, as we tried any number of uh, different things, we got people to to dress up and to post photos of them eating the meal. And uh, we had uh, tasting 
menus that Chef had uh, put together, tasting menus for takeout, you know, different sort of boxes mm-hmm. with different courses, eaten at different times, uh, all sorts of different different ideas. And whilst some had more traction than others, some were more financially uh, helpful than others, sure. I don't think there was a single thing where something actually failed, uh, as in it failed and we lost money or it failed and it was uh, a problem for our business's reputation or something like that. Everything, to some extent, developed who we were as a business, uh, developed uh, how we were seen by the public, yeah. and it developed what we were looking to do uh, with the restaurant when we reopened. You have a decent social media presence and email presence for a brand new business. And I think I followed you as soon as I got there. I think I tagged you in a post and you followed me or whatever. So I followed you. But you got like literally within months, you were communicating directly with your customers. Was there a strategy behind that? Because a lot of organizations still struggle, even, you know, two years after the pandemic or into the pandemic or however you want to frame it, are struggling to connect directly with their customers. That was a really tough study case for you. What did you do to gain traction and to be able to speak to your customers? I think from a social media point of view, it was just nothing was overly curated. Cur- curated, mm-hmm. sorry. It was ourselves. It was either Simon or I posting a picture and, <laughs> and, and writing the blur below it, right? So I think it was authentic. It was real. Um, Simon had the foresight from day one to have a, a newsletter sort of fill-in box on our website, which people, I think a lot of people graciously filled it out and signed up for the newsletter. But I think when you had to- uh, opened. <laughs> yeah, we were, we were again- Community support was so incredible, but we sold a lot of gift cards before opening. We got we were supposed to open just before Christmas. We got delayed. People were already buying gift cards as Christmas gifts. Um, and then once we got into lockdown, people came and bought even more gift cards as a way of helping us. Yeah. But uh, whether you ordered online or tried to buy a gift card online, you're also prompted to give us your email and sort of click on the box that you, you know, we're happy to receive a newsletter. And right. I think we found some interesting stuff to to write about and didn't bombard people too often, but I think for the most part found the right mix of when and how to communicate in the right voice and people seem to respond to it and reciprocate. Well, I I can't believe how much the time is flying, but I want to ask a couple more questions. It would have been very easy to open a second location in a second city. You found a formula, it worked, and surprise, surprise, you opened something and now for something completely different, right down the road, two blocks, you open Picnic in the spring of 2021. And it's a tapas bar. So having honeymooned in Spain and Portugal, I was familiar with tapas and that was kind of cool. But again, not a very Aurelia thing. What's the difference between, and there are similarities, like you can get certain foods that are similar, but it's really a different restaurant. What was the idea of creating two completely different visions within blocks of each other? I think first up, I'd uh, have to disagree with you a little. It, I think it would have been incredibly difficult to open a, a, a second common stove or something okay. like that in a different in a different city in a different in a different town. One of the reasons that I think that that restaurant has, has been very successful is that uh, we were there in the opening days of it, night and day, <laughs> um, uh, adjusting and developing that restaurant and. Uh, sort of starting to hand over the culture of that place to those who were working there. Now, when we came to open a picnic, it was it was never a conversation of thinking let's uh, let's do something similar. It was always a conversation of let's do something different. Yeah. Um. And with uh, with picnic, we we had uh, both had 
uh, a real keenness for that style of cuisine, that style of atmosphere for something that was a little bit more informal still and uh, cozier and uh, a more casual. I think the common stove is, um, we're lucky that our landlord's an architect and mm-hmm. some of the, you know, some of the finished product is a result of, of his vision it and his work. It is beautiful. Um, I think we did a pretty good job of decorating it and stuff like that. Um, but it's, I think it's the most beautiful thing in, in that city as far as restaurants go. Yeah. Um, whereas Picnic, we wanted it to feel like it's been there forever and I want it to be there forever. And that's sort of my, my catch line in my head of let's make it feel like it's always been there. And if we do that right and, you know, uh, work hard at it and be nice, it'll, it'll be there forever. So that'll, uh, it'll all work out in the end. Yeah. So it was lower price menu. And again, the common stove isn't ridiculous. You can pay more for dinner. It doesn't take much to do that. Like when you're thinking about what you want to put in the market, was that just a passion project again? It's like, I wish this kind of restaurant existed. So let's build it. Yeah. I mean, creatively it was, it was, um, a little bit the opposite of the common stove, but again, somewhere that I wanted or would be happy to sit at and have food and have drinks and have conversation and sort of, you know, get lost in time there. Um, we do live music at picnic on Wednesday nights and Sundays and, um, it's just a cozy spot. And I, I'm looking forward to winter. I think if you're sitting inside that place and you're looking out the window and the snow is going down the hill sideways, you're going to just bundle up and have a second drink and stay longer. And um, yeah, it's, it's good and getting better. And I just think it's a really cozy spot and people are really drawn to the, I guess, the warmth of the place, really. Yeah. yeah. And the warmth of the place, again, comes from uh, not just the the ambiance and the, and, and the vibe that's created by the the temperature, the music, the the decor, it comes from the individuals that work there. And I think a picnic even more so where now that uh, there are not quite so many people dining outside uh, a picnic as, uh, as there were over the summer, we only probably have maybe two people working in front of house and two people working in the kitchen at, at any one time. It's, it's such a small spot um, that they are even more integral to the atmosphere, to the vibe of the place, who those, who those characters are going to be. Yeah. Speaking of warmth, uh, did I read correctly that you are continuing winter dining this year? Absolutely. Yeah. So the coolest patio, it's this alleyway, this brick alleyway, and you guys have done a really nice job with some lighting and everything and some great seating. But last year as a project or as a product of just necessity, you allowed people to dine outside in the winter in Canada. You're doing again this year? Like, tell us about that. It's even warmer this year. We have two new heaters, two more heaters. But uh, <laughs> but again, people were were in some ways craving to get out of their houses, obviously. But again, just so willing to support us and embrace whatever we tried. They would come dressed up in their Canada Goose coats and their hats and gloves and coming knowing it's going to be potentially a little bit uncomfortable, but unique. And I'm going to give it a try. And we had guests that ate out there every week, all winter long. We did a... Um, we did a, uh, what was it called? The after, after ski pass, yes. <laughs> uh, which again, we got a bit of traction over Christmas and then we got locked down again. So it did affect things a little bit, but um, we dubbed it the winter lounge. And um, after we're going to go through, you know, every day we're open until New Year's. And then uh, over the, the key cold, cold winter months, it'll be a Friday, Saturday winter lounge. And uh, it's just a fun spot to you know, sometimes maybe it's just having a drink before coming in the restaurant for dinner or having a nightcap on the way out or saying to your friends, let's bundle up and go do something fun and different. 
Wow. Wow. Well, I can't thank you enough. Thanks for bringing uh, just fantastic dining to a little town that means a lot to me. And uh, thanks for the friendship over the last couple of years as well. And I think you've inspired a lot of leaders and hopefully blown open some categories of what people think is possible. Just before we go, if people are interested in learning more, do you have a book you would recommend on restauranting or website you go to regularly? And then uh, obviously all the links for both of you online. Would love to get those. Well, I think firstly, there are there are a few individuals in the industry that uh, we certainly uh, learned a lot from and, um, uh, and appreciate very much. Uh, uh, we're both quite inspired, I think, by by setting the table by uh, Danny Mayer, uh, ah. famous uh, New York restaurateur. Um, Hawksmoor was a, a big influence on uh, on me, and they have um, uh, a couple of a uh, couple of wonderful books. Uh, the second of which is is particularly focused around the restaurants themselves and the individuals that are there. Mm. And what's um, that called? That book? Do you know offhand? Or we'll uh, put it's it called Hawksmoor Restaurants. Um, Oh, we'll I, think it's just the, I think it's the name of the restaurant. We'll put it in the show notes. We'll put it in the show notes. That's um, fine. I love the Joe Beef Cookbook, the original one. I remember oh, yeah. getting my hands on that and reading that till I think 3.30 in the morning and booking a train ticket in the middle of the night to get to Montreal uh, as quick as I could. And that was a big influence on, on the place I opened in Toronto uh, when I first did Farmhouse Tavern. Uh, but the Joe Beef Cookbook is was a game changer for me. Um, and I tend to, I read a lot, but I, I read a lot outside of the industry. Ah. So I've read everything that Seth Godin's ever written and uh, a lot of Seth. business books and that kind of yeah. stuff. So, and I get my ideas from that type of thing versus looking internal to our industry. I agree. I, I call that cross-disciplinary learning. And I find I got so many innovative ideas in ministry from non-ministry sources, which is one of the reasons, hey, I I thought, wow, restauranting, really? On my podcast? I'm like, yeah, but you know what? This is going to spark an idea. I've read every John Maxwell book too, I think. Oh, John Maxwell. Yeah. John's brilliant. And uh, we will link to the episode with John Maxwell, Seth Godin, here on the podcast as well in the show notes. So we can definitely bring you those conversations. But uh, I just want to thank you both. Thank you so much. Simon, Darcy, really appreciate you. Uh, And if people want The Common Stove, it's just what? TheCommonStove.com? TheCommonStove.com and uh, PicnicBar.ca. Okay. Fantastic. Thanks so much, guys. Thank you. Thank you, sir. So how did the dinner go? You're wondering. Uh, I was intimidated. It it went okay. It went fine. And uh, they really love Tony's Brussels sprouts. So that's what I'll say. That's where they said, oh, these are really good. And uh, yeah, we'll do it again. I'll tell you, it was just a great time. And if you're ever north of Toronto, about an hour north of Toronto, uh, and you're near Aurelia, Ontario, check out their restaurants. And uh, I just told them, hey, if a lot of people end up going there, just save me a table, okay? Because I want to (laughs) be in that restaurant as well. So hope you enjoyed that. I have just learned so much from so many different sources, and I wanted you to hear Simon and Darcy's story. They're absolutely delightful people as well, as you can tell. So we got more episodes coming up next time. It's Tim Elmore. And uh, super excited for that conversation. Here's an excerpt. I was talking to a bunch of other leaders, business leaders, and I decided to just kind of turn this group of people into a focus group. And I asked them, do you all think that leading today is harder than it was when you first got a leadership position? And Carrie, every single one of these leaders said, absolutely, it is. One of them said 110%. (laughs) They they got emotional. 
Also coming up, I have got, well, quite the guest list for 2022. Nikki Gumbel, Rick Warren, Donald Miller, Mark Sayers, Nona Jones, Jenny Allen, Craig Rochelle, and Bobby Grunwald are going to talk about the future of hybrid church and so much more. We want to thank our partners for this. They bring this to you for free every single week. So check them out if you haven't done that yet. MetaShare has a 98% customer satisfaction rating and an average member savings of 50% or more. Check out the goodness over there at metashare.com slash carry. That's M-E-D-I-S-H-A-R-E dot com slash C-A-R-E-Y, metashare.com slash carry. And if you're ready for a challenge to unify your church, you can get 10 to 40% off any 40-day challenge from Red Letter Challenge and Red Letter Living. You can get a free book if you're a pastor as well. Just go to redletterchallenge.com slash carry. That's redletterchallenge.com slash C-A-R-E-Y. And hey, I want to share a couple of the really encouraging reviews that have come out. We've been able to help, I think, about 20,000 leaders with my book since it came out in September. It's called At Your Best. It's all about time management. This is a great time of year to get on top of that. And it's funny, when you write a book, you think about different people who are going to read it. So obviously, I'm thinking about pastors, I'm thinking about CEOs, I'm thinking about lawyers, I'm thinking about office workers, but I'm also thinking about motivated parents. And so one of the reviews that got left uh, recently was by someone who identifies as Busy Mommy, and this is what she had to say. This book really put things into a new perspective for me. Once you read it, it seems totally obvious. And and that's a good thing. I've heard that over and over again. It's like, yeah, how did I not see it? But people don't see it. I didn't see it either. So she said, once you read it, it seems totally obvious, but I had never consciously thought of time in this way. And it makes so much sense. I definitely know when my green hours are, and I'm no longer going to try to do my important work during my red zone while also feeling guilty about how poorly I'm performing. Man, Well, thank you so much for that review. That is success in an author's book. And uh, yeah, we'll bring some more of those to you in the future. If you haven't checked out At Your Best, you can go to atyourbesttoday.com. We have a bunch of resources for you. And I'm so encouraged by the feedback we hear every day from people who are saying, this is changing my life. And I thought it would take like a week for people to work through the book. They're working through it in a day or two, uh, audiobook or Kindle, or of course the hardcover. And then they're seeing immediate results. So if you want to get out of overwhelm and get time, energy, and priorities working in your favor, go check it out. It's available widely where any book is sold. And you can find more about it at atyourbesttoday.com. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Excited to do another episode with you next time. And I hope our time together today has helped you thrive in life and leadership. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.